Well, we'll be beginning a short series in the book of 1 John, and by God's grace, hopefully we may end up somewhere in chapter 2. But today, the focus of our text is these four verses in the first chapter. And if you are any fan of legend and myth, you may know that from ancient times that man has been consumed with thoughts of immortality. Throughout the ages, there's been no goal of greater acclaim, no task of greater worth than to achieve unending vitality. Whether this was through crafting of some philosopher's stone or recovering the Holy Grail or discovering a fountain of youth like Jack Sparrow, history is replete with various myths and legends of men trying to gain eternal life. And these attempts haven't been quelled with modernity. As you may know, technology has now replaced these mystical objects and now we rely on various medical feats in order to attain eternal life, in order to allow man to live forever. And just in case you don't believe me that men actually think they can do this, listen to this short piece that I uncovered from Time magazine. Google was featured on the cover of Time Magazine, and it said, the cover said, listen carefully, can Google solve death? Now obviously, this was meant to ramp up sales, you know, you see this and you think, oh my goodness, let me buy it. But it does focus our attention on where man's hope lies. It does focus our attention on where men have placed their trust and hope for ending this tragedy called death. So in this myth, the words of John in his first epistle will conflict with modern sensibilities because he most assuredly says that eternal life has appeared. It's not some invention that we are yet to make. It's not some thought that has yet to come about. He's saying it has appeared and it has been around for 2,000 years. As we consider the text before us, there are three things I want to draw out today. The first is the origin of this life. The second is the credibility of John's witness of this life. And the third is the purpose of John's proclamation regarding this life. Now friends, within these four verses, for whatever reason, John omits the usual salutations and greetings that accompany most epistles. You would recall that Paul usually greets the church uh, when he is introducing a letter. But John omits this and he commences the prologue of this letter with the words, that which was from the beginning. Now these few words may suggest that John is being a bit mysterious or unclear because the subject of his letter is that. He doesn't identify anything other than that. But the apostle doesn't leave us guessing about what he is talking about. He employs the use of this term that which was from the beginning, to ensure that we understand that the subject of his dialogue predates the created world. We don't therefore have to stretch our minds that John is referencing a transcendent being. He's talking about God. John is telling us that his subject was present before everything began, not dependent or reliant on anything. To paraphrase a quote from Matthew Henry, That uncreated excellence, which had been from all eternity, was the great subject concerning which the apostles wrote to the brethren. 
John's opening statement should orient our minds that he's most assuredly referring to the divine. And we shouldn't miss the blessedness and indeed the great privilege in these few words. We should marvel at the fact that God is giving John a message about him for the good of men. In Barbados especially, it is very easy to become callous to the idea that God has revealed something to us. Everybody under the sun in Barbados knows about God. Your man at the rum shop, your grandmother, your mother, everyone knows about God. Hearing about God is not anything particularly surprising in Barbados. You wouldn't say, oh shoot, you know, what are you telling me about? Let me know this new knowledge. That's not the case. The, for us, the idea of gathering around the fire and hearing about the God across the river, that is foreign. Or hearing about the God behind the mountain, as perhaps our ancestors would have. We could easily, easily, easily be those Gentiles who have heard nothing about God. We could easily be those people. God is under no compulsion to reveal himself to men. We are not elevated to the category of the deserving poor. We don't, because of our beggarliness, get to a place where God is compelled to respond to how poor we are. That's not the case. He doesn't owe us anything. But he does choose to reveal himself. And even more than that, he desires that we know him. Can you imagine the joy we'd feel if every time we cracked the Bible open, we brought to memory the fact that God has chosen to say these particular words in these particular ways, this style of writing, this author, so that we may more fully know him. God has woven the details throughout human history and throughout the redemptive narrative so that we may know him more fully. And the proof of God's divine initiative that we would know him is more fully revealed right before us in this text. The apostle is testifying about God not merely in a general sense, not merely a sense that God exists. Oh, big idea. That's not the big idea here. We see the apostle clearly establishing the fact that God is life through the equality he draws out between that which was from the beginning in verse 1 and what we see in verse 2 when he says the life was manifest and we have seen it. And then he says later on the eternal life. These two, th these two ideas within the text are not different subjects that John is referring to. When John says that which was from the beginning, he means the life which was from the beginning. When John says the eternal life, he means that which was from the beginning. All of them are used to convey the idea of the person of God. So within the, the particular text that we're looking at, when we read that which was from the beginning, we should get the sense that the origin of eternal life resides in God. It does not reside in man. And what a relief this is that I don't have to rest my hopes in Google or any company for that matter that probably won't be around in the next 100 or 200 years. The mystery that we have revealed here is that God has chosen to disclose where eternal life resides. And that is truly in himself and nowhere else. Brothers and sisters, God is unchanging and therefore we will not go to him one day and find out that he failed to give us eternal life. We will not go to God and after pleading for years and years that he may clothe us with immortality, he would say, oops, I lost it. He would say, oops, I failed to give it to you. God is unchanging and truthful. He will deliver on his promises. But John goes further than even that to unfold to us 
uh, the subject of that which was from the beginning. He says to us that it is identical to that which he personally and physically interacted with. In other words, this transcendent God has been attested to by empirical evidence. He is here pointing to the credibility of his witness, which is our second point. John proves his claim by appealing to not only his own apostolic witness, but to that of all the apostles. He says, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, we have touched. It's, just, it's not just me, it's Peter, it's James, it's Matthew, it's Philip, it's Simon. All 13 of us who testify to this experience of interacting with God. John enjoins his own credibility with the witness of the other apostles to further reassure us of his testimony. Now, perhaps when you think of belief or faith, you think of unfounded optimism. Something that is rooted in the strength of your own convictions. Now, to make this a bit clearer, because... We are in an age where memes and status updates fly at us every minute. You may, you may hear it said on Facebook, for instance, believe that tomorrow will be a better day. Forget about today's worries, tomorrow will be a better day. But how do you know that? Like, what basis do you have for saying something like that, that tomorrow will be a better day? Even within Christendom, we can't put our, our hopes and say that tomorrow will be a better day. Even though we have a hope of a God returning for us, we won't say that, you know, tomorrow I will suffer less than I did today. We can't say that. Only God can say that with surety. And that's what I mean by unfounded belief. That sometimes we think of faith as being this nebulous thing that we're trusting in just because we want it to be true. That's not the case here. John's proclamation of eternal life to his hearers and indeed to us is that you can have certainty because of the many proofs that he attests to. Our confidence is not a fairy tale. We are not called to conjure up belief blindly. John enumerates empirical evidences so that we could be assured of the things he says. So we should take careful note of the amplification that he applies here. It's as though John is in a court of appeal and he's saying, giving, giving evidences of everything that he's seen and heard. It's as though he's being questioned on the stand. It's like, you know, have you seen him? You mean when he walked down to Calvary or when he was rebuking the Pharisees? You, have you looked upon him? You mean when he stilled the storm or when he was at Golgotha? John is here presenting to us the reasons why we should be assured of his testimony. He's giving multiple pieces of evidences. He doesn't appeal to what he thinks, or his opinions, or even his Jewish ideals. He attests to the fact that whatever there was respecting this exalted nature, dignity, and majesty, was the object of sight and hearing of the apostles. Not with their mind's eye, or an out-of-body experience. This was a recounting of their bodily, and I'd use the term ordinary, interaction with the divine and John doesn't limit his statements to mere facts though it isn't quite captured by our English rendering of the Greek text but when John says in verse 1 that he has looked upon that which was from the beginning the sense we should get from this word is that he beheld or he gazed upon it with all 
Some commentators note that the use of the term suggests either that the apostles contemplated the extraordinary nature of the divine or that their eyes were affixed to this spectacle or with awe. Whichever case, whichever the case is, what they beheld relating to the divine was not a flippant glance or observation. That wasn't the case. It was an encounter that moved the affections and stirred the, the faculties of the mind. The nearest example I can think of, which a brother of mine brought up with me, is going to the Grand Canyon. As you inch closer and closer to the edge, your thoughts are only further provoked by awe as you see birds flying beneath you. Your mind is trying to catch up with what you are seeing. It's just so great and awful that you are looking below at birds flying beneath you. And that's something of the sense we get when we read that John and the other apostles saw, they looked upon, they gazed upon God. And so too do we. Every time Jesus is presented freshly before our eyes, every time that God is presented freshly before our eyes, we have this sense of awe that we are looking at a weighty God, a glorious God. But we should also take notice of John's testimony that the divine was handled with their hands. The sense of the word here may also have the connotation of feeling after or verifying by contact. It's as though John is saying we could attest to his form, his features by personal experience. This is important as it at least suggests that what they observed wasn't an optical illusion. They weren't hallucinating or something. They weren't hungry and mistakenly thought that Jesus was who he wasn't. He was tangible and was proven to exist within the material world. Now, there should be a nagging question in the back of our minds as we go through this passage because the apostle is making such effort to substantiate the claim that the divine was seen visually, audibly, and tangibly, but why? We know from the, primary, from the context that the primary audience of John was believers. It wasn't as though he was writing this to a bunch of unbelievers or pagans who worshipped cows, and he was trying to convince them that the divine had come bodily. That wasn't the case. Also, what makes it even stranger is that within the same book, he says in chapter 2 and verse 21, he writes, not because they do not know the truth, but because they know it. We should bear in mind then that the apostle's goal in the writing of this letter is not to primarily communicate new information. That's not the case. If the apostle was so assured, though, that his audience were Christians, because he addresses them as children, he addresses them as those who are believers, those who have fellowship, beloved, then what is the purpose of this letter for its recipients? Well, one of the reasons was that there seemed to be a great danger of false teaching which threatened to undermine the foundational teaching delivered by the apostles. It's hard, therefore, to miss that throughout John's entire discourse, he's warning and instructing believers concerning false teaching. John leaves no room for ambiguity when he expresses later down in the chapter that he's actually writing about false teachers. The, there were certain individuals who came in and, twist, and twisted sorry, the original message that was delivered by the apostles. And that specifically was about 
the fact that Jesus came and took on physicality, that God had condescended and took on physicality. This was a denial of the central tenet of the Christian message, which not only the apostle exposed in the Gospel of John, but which all the other apostles claimed. What is at stake, therefore, in the mind of John is nothing less than the truth about God. It's either that you believe that God came tangibly, physically, or you believe that he didn't. And therefore, one is an act of great idolatry because you say that God is something that he is not. So the apostle is trying to clarify, really, some first commandment issues before us here. He's trying to ensure that we are thinking about God correctly, that we're worshipping God correctly. And this isn't some incidental theological point which he's bringing out. The testimony that John has is foundational to the Christian faith as he's claiming that God appeared bringing eternal life to men. The writer of Hebrews claims that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. How happy, therefore, we ought to be when John fully or more thoroughly explains this fact to us. We see this clearly at the end of verse 1 where John states his proclamation concerns the word of life. Now John Calvin, the the renowned reformer, second-generation reformers suggest that the meaning of the term word of life may refer to either the person of Christ or the gospel message which brings life. The subject of John's discourse therefore concerned God who condescended as the man Jesus or it's concerned the message from God about the man Jesus. Whichever the case, it doesn't really matter how you render it, the substance of the message is the same. The substance of the message is that the divine has come bodily in the form of a man to bring eternal life to men. And So note within the parenthesis that we have here in verse, between verses 2 and verses 3, John is expressing that the life was manifest or made, was made apparent by the many proofs that we previously enumerated. He's stressing that God, who was with the Father, who was previously invisible or imperceptible, was made known. He appeared. It's not some abstract idea that he's trying to bring out. He isn't speaking about primarily the endless progression of days. He isn't thinking of our concept of life raised to the highest power. That's not what he's speaking about. He knew eternal life as a man, as Jesus himself. The eternal life which Jesus offers to us is certainly nothing less than living forever. But everyone lives forever, technically. You either live forever in hell or you live forever in heaven. Everyone lives forever. I think the qualitative aspect of the eternal life is what is most primarily in view. John Piper remarks that all of God's benefits through Jesus Christ are summed up in this eternal life. All of God's benefits, all of the benefits communicated to us in the covenant of grace are summed up in this eternal life. And one of the primary ways in which God bestows grace to his people is by regenerating them so that they may be vitally united to Christ. 
The benefit of this union with Christ is, as we will see a bit later, that we may fellowship with Him. And this is actually an encouragement to live into our old age. We have something to look forward to. We don't get gray hair and think, oh no, oh no, my best days are behind me. We get to our old age and we think, oh yes, oh yes, what is to come? That is the sense in which um, we are supposed to think of our old age. When I was younger, I used to think after 18, my life was over. At 25, I still have a sense that my life is over. (laughs) But John reminds us that that's really faulty thinking. That eternal life is ahead of us. That God has ensured that he will come and be with his people and fellowship with them forever. Now strongly implied here in his statements is the fact that we didn't have eternal life. Obviously if John is saying that eternal life appeared then we didn't have it before. What John is speaking of is that what we had was eternal death. What we had residing in ourselves was death. The origin of eternal life is, to use a term which seems kind of ill-suited, but at that timeless time when God existed or exists, He disclosed himself in and through the man, Jesus Christ. What we had previously was death, as I said. It is our sin which necessitates that we need life. Since Adam sinned, all the world has been subject to death naturally. But this is not even our chief malady. Our chief malady isn't that one day we hawk up and fall over and we're in a grave. That's not our chief malady. Our chief malady is that God no longer looks on the posterity of Adam with favor. God looks at them as objects of wrath. God has promised to pour out his wrath on sinners for all eternity in hell. Not only because of Adam's sin. So we are punished not only for Adam's sin, but we're punished for ours as well. The effects of Adam's sin are such that humans naturally have no desire no admiration, no responsiveness to the things of God. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. We are ignorant of who God is, not because we don't know that He exists, but that we refuse to acknowledge Him, as Paul enumerates or cites in Romans 1. As the old adage goes, we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And as such, we're alienated from the life of God. As Paul claims, we are separated from him. Brethren, this is who we were. Just mere sinners. That is all we were. Created by God, yes. But reviled by God. (laughs) Created by God, yes. But we were children of wrath, even as others. Many of us have done misdeeds which we are even ashamed to mention now in our Christian life. Even to those closest to us, our rebellion has involved the most shameless acts. Even now, under the constant flood of God's grace, we experience rebellion in our own personal lives. Brethren, then how thankful we should be that Christ has come and secured eternal life for us. He not only imparts life, He not only freely bestows it, that is the purpose of John's discourse here before us, but 
He says that it is so that we may have fellowship with him. God doesn't want to just save us, send us on a roller coaster to heaven and send us under the mango tree to chill out. The great purpose that God has been working throughout the creation narrative to accomplish is so that we would be restored to fellowship with him. And that's what John is getting at when he speaks in verses 3, or yes, verses 3, that he's writing so that we may have fellowship with him. His writing is so that the people whom he is addressing would be drawn to greater and greater fellowship with him. So, if the people were already Christians though, why then is John writing so that they may have fellowship with the Father and the Son? To be united with Christ means you have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Those, those things are coterminous. There's no Christian who's not fellowshipping with God. You may sin, but there's no Christian who is not, at some point not fellowshipping with God. But in one sense, we have to remember the immediate context. The immediate context is that there were people who were denying who this God is. There were people who were denying that God had come bodily. So John is saying that if you trust in a different Jesus than the one that I've expounded on right here, you do not have fellowship with God. You are lost because you are trying to be united with some conception in your mind that doesn't exist. But on the other hand, in another sense, John's aim is so that Christians who hear this message will be stirred to greater and greater communion with God. The great goal of the gospel proclamation, as I said, isn't so that we could get on a roller closer to heaven. God throughout history is working marvelously to restore us to greater and closer communion with himself. So how do we further our fellowship with God? This seems like a really mystical question that sometimes is missed in Christianity. Do you go up on the mountain? Do you get the holy man to come from Africa in order to draw you closer to God? No, that's not the case. You engage in the ordinary means that God has provided. It is through preaching we are further allured by a deep sense of the majesty of God. Comforted through various trials, exhorted to further holiness. Just think of what the apostle has written here for us. What happens when Jesus is told to us by a friend about how great and majestic he is? Isn't it a case where when we are further exposed to teaching about who he is, that we do not grow in further excitement for him? That we do not get a greater sense of what it would be in heaven? That is, that is the great goal that John is seeking to accomplish here. The summary of what God has done in Christ through his incarnation wasn't merely meant to affirm the, the physical body of Jesus was a thing. That's, that's not the case. But it was meant to remind us of what he has come to do for us. What he has come to accomplish on our behalf. Another ordinary means that God has set before us in order that we may more fully participate in fellowship with him and enjoy the benefits of the covenant is through the communion table. Through the communion table, we are reminded of what God in Christ has done, that he has come through the person Jesus Christ to shed his blood for on our behalf. We're reminded of his sufferings 
and his pledge that he is coming again for his people. God has also left the, the saints to encourage us, rebuke us, and correct us throughout this life. But all of these are meant to direct our attention and our affection towards greater meditation upon the object of our joy, which is Jesus himself. Brethren, nothing in this life can promote the further discovery of the great love that God has for us. Nothing can fuel greater acquaintance and enjoyment of God and his son Jesus than engaging in these ordinary means. John gives us this summative statement of the gospel where he speaks about God's great condescension as a man. He gives us this great summary not because he thinks that we forgot. Not because he thought, oh shoot, let me write this letter, but because maybe they forgot what happened at Calvary. Maybe they forgot that Jesus came as a man. No, that wasn't the case. He gave us these words so that we may be further enamored with Christ, what has been done in Christ. But let's think more personally. How are you furthering the fellowship of others? John leaves us a great example in this letter. Do you have a burden to deepen the communion others have with God? Are you merely content with seeing that the brethren have a credible profession of faith and you see them on a Sunday and that's it? Is that the end for which you have fellowship with other believers? And is that the end to which you seek to see others believers, other believers fellowshipping with God? Is that your only goal? John claims that there's joy, joy, and more joy to be had in further rooting our souls in him who loves us and freed us by his blood. He leaves here a positive example for us all to direct our energy towards furthering the fellowship others have with God. Let us provoke others to stir them up to think more deeply upon the incomprehensible God who is from the beginning. It's easy to miss as we get caught up in the formality of church. It's, it's really simple to miss. It's very easy to wake up, come here, and go back home like we do with work. It's quite easy to do. Our membership in this church is a commitment to one another. We have to remember that. It exists to steer other souls to that celestial city, to foster discipleship and to further the witness of Jesus, the eternal life. And you don't have to have an extravagant plan in order to foster fellowship with others. Sometimes we may think, oh, I have to invite them over to lunch and I have to figure out what meal I'm going to cook for them or I have to bring up the conversation in this way or catch the person in this scenario. No, that's not the case. Simply telling people about what God has been doing in your life. Simply telling people about how Jesus has allowed you to overcome this particular situation. Telling people about how you have shared the gospel with others, the work of God in your workplace. These are the things that help us in, in helping others to fellowship with God. Laughing with those who laugh about the things that they have, the victories that they have. Mourning with those who mourn over their sin. Those are the things that help promote our fellowship with God. And it is our great privilege together to work towards this end. To the end that our God would be magnified, that we would make much of Jesus, the fact that he has come and bestowed eternal life to us. Well, if you're not a Christian, John writes that the great, even almost in an 
apologetic way, John writes, in order to assure us that Christ has come into the world, that he may bring fellowship, that he may bring sinners into fellowship with God. Christ offers us life by offering up his sinless body, a substitute for ours. He received on himself the grievous punishment that we should have received on the cross. And those who come to him by simple faith, it doesn't have to be a great measure of faith, but a simple faith, even that God accepts. God no longer holds them as guilty, but in his final court of appeal, they're acquitted of all their crimes against him and accepted because Jesus closed them in his righteousness. If you haven't trusted in Christ, why not? If you do not believe the words of the apostles, who will you believe? If it is that the apostles' testimony of what Jesus has done isn't believable enough, for instance, why do you believe that, say, slavery happened? Or, say, Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas? Why, why is it that this testimony that the apostles have is not enough to convince you? These aren't merely a set of facts which you can treat with callous indifference. Your eternal destiny lies in the balance. Whether or not you fellowship with God is of eternal significance. Whether or not you know that 2 plus 2 is 4 is quite trivial. It may be important, but in comparison, it's trivial. So if you would but lay your confidence in him, he will save you. You can rest on the testimony of the apostles that he will. Google will be of no help in the last day. The alphabet company... The, the company Alphabet, its parent company, will be of no help to us. It may not even be around. So don't lay your hopes up in an earthly invention. I pray that we will all trust in the Christ who has been made known, this transcendent God who was from the beginning, who has been made known in and through the person Jesus Christ, that he may bring fellowship to men.